and welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hello, Patrick. Hi, Jeff. That's my new my new announcer voice. Oh, <laughs> you, I was waiting for the hello, Jeff Q, and it didn't come. So, uh, hello, Jeff. Ah, hello, Patrick. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm 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 well here in this fine, uh, slightly rainy, but maybe now springtime in Portland. Yeah, we've had a reversion to the mean. Uh, uh, we always talk about the weather at the beginning of the podcast for some reason. I think it's in uh, Portland weather's a big deal. Yeah. We have so little of it that we focus over much on it, I think. My older son was dying yesterday because the the temperature got to about 82 and he was he was absolutely like un- beside himself. It was just it was too hot to move. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the Portlander for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, as always, uh, with me is Jeff Allworth. He is the author of the newly released Secrets of the Master Brewers, as well as old favorites like the Beer Bible and Cider Made Simple. Old favorites. You're already calling the Beer Bible an old favorite? It's like a... Not Two that years old. old. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know. Secrets of the Master Brewers is uh, a book where you <laughs> talk think- to master brewers and they reveal their secrets. That's exactly what it is. Wow, excellent. Yes. That's exa- actually, that's exactly what it is. Which, this is, the title is not mine, um, uh, but you can tell that somebody smarter than me figured it out. Yeah, it's good to be able to figure out what's going to be in it. Although, uh, I will say that we've tried a couple of the recipes that are in there. So not only do they re- reveal their secrets, but they give you recipes. They do. That's part of the secret. And we've tried a couple. Um, the IPA from Ben Edmonds is We've tried more than you know, actually. Oh, okay. We've you tried often, several. <laughs> you often ask me to draft the... Uh, uh, I, I, recipes and I, I rely heavily on our relationship people. has become more about me asking you to do everything <laughs> i'll just show up and read the script yeah becoming which, which i'm already not doing a very good job of uh you blog at birvana uh it's now birvana.blivanablog.com correct good job uh very slick very nice good job uh and you write for all about beer correct. magazine i do you are patrick emerson you're a Professor of Economics at Oregon State University. Go Beeves. Indeed. You blog and tweet at at Beeronomics. Or, well, I, uh, I, I tweet that. I tweet at Beeronomics. I blog, well, yeah, yeah. sort of. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, this is the time of year, by the way, when um, the idea of teaching quarters really sucks because the, my, my friends and colleagues who teach on semesters are all finishing up their school year. So congratulations to all those students go to schools on semester but uh, i have another month month plus to go the listener audience out there by which i mean the listener i'm sure it's just crying or ri- crying you a river <laughs> you only my, have one more month my three left month summer job. vacation doesn't, doesn't start for another month <laughs> we're, we're all broken up about okay, that. never mind i won't <laughs> i won't talk about myself anymore uh okay so today's topic um, i'm actually pretty excited about i'm even more excited glancing over at our big our big lineup of, of IPAs there is, in fact, about uh, the uh, IPAs, in fact, the history of IPAs. Um, as the second decade of the 21st century winds down, we take it as a given that IPAs are the most popular style of craft beer in the United States, but they only displaced pale ales for the top spot in 2011. Wow, really? 2011? Correct. See, I learn things all the time. <laughs> it would've, says it on the script. Things I would have learned right. if I had read the script. <laughs> uh, we're going to follow the style backward in time and see how they got started, and most importantly, how they began to change uh, into becoming the beers we recognize today. I did a little edit there. I don't know whether the grammarian in you is going to kill me. <laughs> Always uh, correct my prose on the fly to make it less grammatical. That's a good <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> 
I like to appeal to the common man, yeah. not to the erudite, <laughs> because I we we're talking about beer, man. Uh, all right. Uh, this is going to be a fun podcast because there's a lot of beer we got to get through. We're going to try to take a little time travel through the history of American IPAs. American. Yeah, this is a cool thing that came to us from a listener who suggested we do a history of IPAs uh, and kind of trace uh, how the style evolved. And we're going to do that not only uh, with our mouths uh, describing it, but also with our mouths tasting it. So we've got the, we've got like 35 years of beer there to try. Nice. Um, and as you know, I'm a big hophead. I love, do. Love my IPAs. <laughs> so I'm pretty excited about this. You're a man of the people that way, too. Right, right in my wheelhouse. Although, as we've talked about recently many times on this podcast, I find myself drinking like Pilsners and Lagers just maybe 90% of the time. I know. Uh, I'm just to- totally wild about them now, and I can't stop. But today it's IPAs, and we're going to... Today's IPAs, and it's going re- to rekindle that flame in me, and, and off we go. Yep. All right. Uh, all that is coming up, but first, the news. And in the news, on Wednesday, AB InBev announced it was buying Asheville, North Carolina's Wicked Weed. They are a darling of beer geeks, famous for their wild ales. This marks the 10th brewery ABI has inquired in its high-end portfolio. A day later, Lagunitas announced it was selling their remaining 50% to Heineken. As usual, recriminations and agita rocked social media after the announcement. And that's well, that's a well-turned phrase. <laughs> <laughs> and it did. Uh, yeah, in fact, I remember uh, uh, you. there was a little, slightly snarky post, uh, Twitter tweet, sorry, a slightly snarky tweet um, that you put out after you uh, received the Lagunitas press release. It wasn't the press release. It was Tony McGee, who was the former owner of uh, Lagunitas, wrote this extremely long and, um, uh, sorry, Tony, but pretty uh, (laughs) self-involved description of why it was a great move that he was selling to Heineken. And it it included not to be pretentious in there, and I thought (laughs) probably... That's what that was. Okay, that was right. Yeah, that's the snarky snarky bit of the comment. Yeah, I mean, mean, more power. If you're going to sell out, make, you know, cash in, more power to you. You, That guy spent a long time building up that company and that brand, and uh, but yeah, it's what it is. So just say, dude, so I'm selling out, making a fortune, and and See ya. <laughs> it was reported that he made uh, half a billion dollars for the first half. I don't know that he got a half a billion for the second half, and probably a lot of that is his money, so he's just got to be making a lot of money, and I'm sure he's going to be involved in what happens in the future, so it's all very exciting for him. But um, Yeah, but to try to play it off as some like uh, great moment for the, the people. And, yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit rich. So. Uh, and so ABI uh, is still expanding its high-end portfolio. Apparently, yeah, I think everybody was a little bit surprised to see that. It was a this it caught, it definitely caught me by surprise. Yeah, so in in geographical terms, does this fill a niche? No, not really. They because had, they have um, they had um, that uh, that blogger brewery. Oh, I can't believe <laughs> the old brain, the old brain. Um, yeah, sorry. which is from somewhere in like maybe Virginia or exactly. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah. I think there's that one in Virginia, and I wish I had it in the top of my head too. Everybody, everybody's listening to this is saying, say, shouting the name, but we're Sweetwater. Nope, no, 
That is a brewery in the south, but it's not one that uh, ABI owns. <sighs> okay, well, that was what my brain popped up, popped up with. We'll we'll, uh, we'll see if over the course of the, the pod. Yeah, it'll it'll it will it'll, it'll <laughs> <pop in. laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's interesting because yeah, it seemed like they were taking a pause um, yeah. on their high end stuff. Uh, locally, by the way, speaking of ABI high end breweries, the uh, local boys Ten Barrel from Bend are about to celebrate their tenth anniversary. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So more power to them. Yeah. Check out my. It turns out controversial comments on that on beervanablog.com. Actually, which is sort of in a similar vein as the as the Lagunitas thing, which is. If you're gonna sell out, great, but don't try to pretend you haven't or right. Don't yeah yeah okay. Uh, and I will say I wouldn't mind going to that because De La Soul is playing in Bend. Can you believe that De La Soul? They were able to book De La Soul to yeah. come to Bend, Oregon. Yeah, sweet. That's some AB money there. That ain't no craft money. You get <laughs> That's true. Yeah, no, ain't no ten barrel <laughs> getting De La Soul to come. That is, that is uh, some sweet times. Uh, what's next? All right. Uh, another thing that I noticed that was quite interesting, um, uh, article in Wired Magazine mentioned that uh, researchers have released an updated genome of barley. They had done an earlier version in 2012, but this is a more detailed one. Um, and it, they're hoping that it will allow them to uh, produce better barley and find markers that will help breed barley that uh, – is adapted to different climates in the United States, for example, but also mm-hmm. adaptable to changing climate. Um, and uh, one thing that that, that led uh, me to follow was this rise in the United States of artisanal um, malt houses that mm-hmm. do these like small amounts of, uh, of grain, and they often right. will grow uh, barley, uh, more like heirloom barley varieties or right. barley varieties here in the United or here in Oregon. There's a, a place called Mecca Grade. Uh, a, a little malt house in Madras, and they're working with uh, OSU, your um, institution, to uh, produce a thing called Full Pint, which was bred at OSU, right. uh, uh, and it was designed for for a desert uh, climate. So it's it's really well suited for Madras. Yeah, and there's some brief mention of the the barley program when we talked back in the pod where we talked to Tom Schellheimer. So if you're interested, check that out. Yeah, and those uh, are happening in other places. I saw that uh, in, the, in uh, New England or New York, uh, they're doing another malt house is doing that. There's one in the South. I think there's one in Michigan. So it's cool stuff that's happening. In fact, your other, it was in New York because it was your other institution, Cornell, mm-hmm. who is working on uh, barley trials in New York State. So, ah, nice. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they're growing more hops up there too. So Yeah, it's cool. Uh, okay, and the last uh, news is sort of local but interesting from a national perspective, maybe international perspective, which is that the Oregon Brewers Guild, the local uh, craft beer alliance or, or, or industry group, released the numbers for 2016, and they were, again, incredibly rosy. Um, if the rest of the country catches up to us, there's a lot of growth left in the, ca- in the craft segment, apparently, because uh, local, brew- uh, local beer grew 8.7% by volume in 2016, and 23% of the beer drunk in Oregon was brewed here. And, and this is just astounding, 65% of draft beer in the state was, broed, was brewed locally. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. And, and we don't have, that's not like a trick because we have a bud plant here. It's All of that stuff would be what we would call right. craft beer. So it's, uh, these are all craft beer figures. Yeah, um, that's, yeah, we don't even have, figures. we don't even have the, the Weinhards anymore. So, right. um, it's all basically craft beer. And, and, uh, a while ago we've been touting, there was this, this old stat about how much local beer was, 
on draft in Portland. Right. And it was even lower than this, so 50 some odd percent. And that was always astounding. But this is the entire state, 65% of draft beer in the entire state is wow. brewed locally. That's awesome. Yeah. It, it, to me, that shows uh, a development of craft culture. Mm-hmm. People, when they go out for a beer, they're looking for, for something that's more flavorful. Uh, and I do think that that's the kind of thing, to me, if I were looking for markers for, you know, the health of a market and how how stable craft mm-hmm. beer would be i would look at draft beer uh because that's what people are drinking when they're going out yeah and um that's like they're if people want if, you know that if the people want an ipa 65 percent of people want an ipa um they're not going to be going back so i think that's a very strong number yeah the rest of the country if they could catch up with us would in, i mean that would create a market that is so much bigger than the one that we have now and all this panic that we're having we would probably not have to have yeah though i I think probably oregon is anomalous in in a couple of ways but still it shows the potential it it may be an outlier but i don't think it's a trim i mean it's not a tremendous outlier um i do think that uh it's a bit of a bellwether it's a bit of a um an indication of where the where i where where a mature craft beer market can end up i hope that's true i really it would it would be very good for the brewers of america if that were the case yeah i think so all right all right so before we get to the main topic we'd like to remind you all that the beer vana podcast is sponsored by guinness uh of course one of the newer guinnesses is the nitro ipa which is sort of an obvious uh beer to talk about since um we're talking about ipas uh it's on point for the topic it's on point for the topic i've actually i've had a fair amount of nitro ipa in recent months um partly because of the guinness thing i decided it was good to know what um what these new guinness beers were like uh and i quite like it well that's that's excellent (laughs) it's good because if i didn't like it that would be tough yeah um it's different though what actually one of the things i like about it is that it's uh um i find it sort of more of a uh um i don't want to say british uh yeah it's totally british but i mean uh, I, I, <laughs> Irish British uh, <laughs> style IPA, um, which is harder and harder to find these days. And we'll talk about all the American IPAs. But that's right. Today we're going to be talking mostly about American IPAs. But we're going to have to talk about when we first start out. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, where this whole thing started, which was England. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing we're not going to talk a whole lot about is that interperiod between the heyday of IPAs, which was a couple hundred years ago. Right. Uh, we're not going to talk about like the fifties, the 1950s and stuff. IPAs in England wasn't really, there wasn't a whole lot going on then. Right. Um, but the beers that you would have found that were, would have been typical were like, uh, the Guinness product. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, fairly, it's interesting. Fairly malt, malt forward, subtle, subtle, but sort of spicy, piney hops. Right. They wanted it to be in balance and, uh, nitrogen works a little bit like cask, uh, a uh, cascale. So I think they were probably looking for the flavor impact that you'd find on cascale, which is not, you know, when you put an, an American IPA on cask, it blows it out. It right. Work so, so this well. is actually one of the big differences, of course, with the Guinness product is that it comes with a, a widget inside. And so it's, it's got nitrogen. If you, it infuses the nitrogen immediately as you open the can. Uh, and I'm interested to know what you think that does, because one of the first things I thought when I had the can was, I'd really like to try this without the nitrogen, because the nitrogen kind of creates, um, and you wrote here, like a pillow on the on the tongue, and that's exactly kind of how it almost feels like this sort of airy pillow that almost um, buffers the flavor a bit. 
It does, uh, and, and aromatics as well. Um, it, it definitely creates a different impression, and it works really well with stout, where you have assertive flavors of roasted barley and yes. uh, the, the hops. Precisely. Um, I, I think it's important to uh, harmonize the dispense system with the beer itself. Uh-huh. And this is one reason I think Cascale doesn't work very well in America is people just put random beers on Cascale, not right. beers that were designed. This beer was actually designed to be put on nitro. Uh-huh. That's what they didn't. Um, and in fact, they took some heat for it when they introduced it because it's really out of step with modern American IPAs, which right. are so vivid with flavor and aroma of, exactly. of hops. And this, yeah. this beer is really designed to showcase different layers of flavor. Yeah. And, um, and it sure does. It does. And so I think, you, you know, you have to look at it as a, it's a different kind of IPA. And when Guinness released it, they were looking to, to, to position themselves in a different place than, uh, you know, New England IPAs are right now. Yeah. And I imagine a typical drink will have the same, drinker will have the same, American drinker will have the same uh, sort of first experience that I did, which was uh, you have to kind of um, turn your perception around because you're, you're ready for the, the modern American IPA that's full of aromatics and just like, massive hop flavor on the tongue and this is much a much more subtle much more um uh nuanced ipa i think we have uh one note here that i I got from the brewery which was uh, the guy who had developed it is named uh, luis ortega and he's from madrid oh interesting um so he was the one who developed this beer and he and i love this he recommends it with uh, ceviche so oh of course i uh, i'm everyone everyone yeah <laughs> <laughs> that goes without saying uh that's interesting let me think if i can think about my uh the f- taste on my mouth and then the taste of ceviche two fairly distant flavors point out but i guess um what i would say is it's kind of a nice uh god i don't want to use this term make people think that it's bland it's not bland at all but it's sort of this um it's a balanced sort of uh, neutral in the sense that it's kind of well balanced hops hops and um, malt characteristics that I think it can really take a lot of nice spicy flavor on top. Um, I wonder how it works with, because ceviche has, uh, you know, it's uh, marinated in, in citrus, so it's got the bright citrusy yep. stuff, but it's also got a fairly strong umami property because it's raw fish. Mm. And uh, uh, I just got back from Mexico where I ate like eight pounds of ceviche. <laughs> got really in touch with my ceviche. Uh, and you want, and, and I had a... Uh, uh, a pilsner with that and it worked mm-hmm. quite well you want a beer that doesn't interfere with that kind of umami uh quality which is a little bit more subtle you, you know it's uh you got your fishiness but you just like it's raw protein and yeah. you really want to accentuate that so i'm guessing that uh it probably works pretty well with that but we'll have to give it a try at some point i'd like to see how it goes with ceviche i just got these notes this week so All right, we'll uh, about luis and his ceviche recommendation yeah well so we got to get the the guinness to send us a bunch of ceviche <laughs> <laughs> that's right or fly us or send to- us yeah send us to, to to mexico to have a nice ceviche absolutely or or even better let's go to madrid i'll either one yeah uh, we could know. go we could go to madrid we could we- talk to luis in madrid eating ceviche and drinking natural ipa I think that's brilliant. Well, I, I'm with I'm with you there. <laughs> I would say dealer's choice. Uh, uh, phones on uh, silence, please. Um, yeah. any, anyway, thanks uh, to uh, Guinness for giving us those notes, and everybody should give that beer a try. We're going to be recommending many IPAs. The one that one is not going to be in the same vein as these, and sometimes that's what you want. It's a beer that's not uh, that's a different 
We've got a different flavor profile. Yeah. So All right, we got to get off. We got to get off the Guinness bit. Um, but thank you, Guinness, for su- sponsoring us, and thank, right. and thank you for sending us new beers because that's a lot of fun. Um, oh yeah, by the way, I actually have a bottle of uh, their new Irish wheat for you, which I have. I'll give you after. Oh, the show. we got one. Yeah, nice. Okay. Hey, by the way, and I just realized this at this moment um, because you're talking about Mexico. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Oh, yeah, Cinco de Mayo, <laughs> which apparently is an American invention, really. It's, like, not a big deal in Mexico, I'm, I'm told. I've or, read I've read even, and, and listeners maybe can can confirm or disabuse me of this, that it was even, like, a, a beer conglomerate <laughs> thing. Well, then that's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's <laughs> let's kind of invent a holiday where we can, send, we can sell a bunch of our beer, and I can't okay. remember what it was. Okay. Uh, Flash Beer Sherpa. Favorite Mexican beer. Go. What do you recommend for Cinco de Mayo? Pacifico. Yeah, Pacifico. Good choice. That's mine, too. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, But... Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll stick with Pacifico. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's it's May fifth. We're talking about this today, and it's a minor holiday. In, in, it's almost a non-entity in Mexico, but in America, it's an excuse to drink a lot of beer. So it is. we're excited about it. And it, uh, Oregon really gets in to Cinco de Mayo. I think probably it's a little bit regional. I'm not sure. In Kansas, they're drink, doing a lot of Cinco de Mayo. You know, it's easy to get cynical, but I think it's great that we have a big celebration of a Mexican holiday. They're I do too. They're our neighbor. They're our neighbors, and Mexicans great. And I'm going to Mexico City in June, by the way. Oh, that's very cool. I might be going in November, so we'll have to compare notes. And eat a lot of ceviche. <laughs> okay, so right. we actually have a whole bunch of uh, IPAs to get through. Yeah, One, so, two, so we have seven seven IPAs to get through. So as we go through the history, I think I suggest we just keep starting to drink the beers. And so why don't we just go ahead and get started? You crack this one, and I'm going to give you a little bit of history while you crack. All right, that sounds good. Okay, so we need to go ba- all the way back to... Uh, the where IPAs came from um, that came from I'm going to do this fast because we got to get through a lot of stuff but um, in the 1700s the British Empire was shipping uh, uh, was actually bringing stuff back from all the colonies in the in, in ships and uh, they were trying to figure out what to send to the colonies to keep as ballast and one of the obvious things to do was beer because uh, it doesn't need to come back so by the way and I realize this is probably an unfair question, but do you have any idea how long that ship journey was? Like, was it weeks? Well, it what? depends on which way, where they were sending it, because they were sending it to all their colonies. So they oh, were okay. sending it to the Baltics, they were sending it to North America, they were sending it to India. Okay. The Indian one was like months. Okay. It took, they had to go months. around the Horn of Africa, and right. yeah, it was, and it was very violent. So the one that we're concerned about here was the, the trip to India, the ones that went to North America and the Baltics, cold they were shorter trips. They were cold hulls, so the beer was preserved pretty well. Yeah, Around the horn, of Ala- uh, horn of Alaska, the Horn of Africa, um, there were points where the uh, the sea gets to be uh, 80 degrees, 85 degrees. Uh, and so the, the holes in the ships got really warm. Right. And they had to last for months. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. Uh, the thing is, everybody uh, believes that the IPA was invented uh, as the sole kind of example of beer that would survive. It's not really true. Mm-hmm. Um, porters were still quite popular, and porters were great. If it was a strong beer that had a fair amount of hops, it survived. It didn't matter what style it was in. Um, and uh, by by seven, and they, they were sending some milder styles, and they were not surviving so well. So by 1760, brewers were being advised that it was absolutely necessary to have a lot of hops. And in the 1790s, uh, the beer that was starting to become popular among the, the stronger, hoppier beers was a pale ale. That's mm-hmm. about the time when pale ales were coming in, into vogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, pale ales at the time were quite strong. Beers were much stronger 
uh, in this period of time. Yeah, I was about to ask because you're emphasizing how much hops they should have, but is that also true with the alcohol? It's uh, yeah, they need to have a lot of alcohol, but they weren't necessarily specially brewed with high alcohol. They already had high alcohol, so that's slightly part of the myth. Okay, um, but here's the interesting thing: everybody thinks IPAs were invented uh, and were designed to to go to uh, India, and you know they were specially designed and, and all these things. It's not really yeah. true, okay. and in fact. Only 10,000 barrels of beer were being sent to India, which is a tiny, tiny fraction. Right. There was uh, there were a couple of breweries in London at the time that were bringing 100,000 barrels. So 10,000 barrels sending it down to India is nothing. We were right. sending 60,000 barrels to North America. What was what's fascinating is the reason this style became popular was because in the 1820s, local some local marketing genius said we should capitalize on all this kind of. Uh, everybody in in Britain was really excited about the Raj and right. stuff that was coming back and could be associated with these far flung colonies uh, was selling very well. Uh, I see locally, and so somebody decided, hey, we should say this is uh, pale ale as prepared for the Indian market. Mm-hmm. And once they did that and had the association with the Raj and sort of the gentry, right. then it started to become very popular. Um, uh. By 1840s, they were calling it India pale ales, but it was mostly the the big phenomenon was actually a British phenomenon. Okay, yeah. So that, that was because I, I asked you this prior to us recording the pod um, when we were just discussing the topic, which is I can never keep straight like what part of that story is apocryphal, you know, of the Indian. So it is true they were shipping beer to India. It is true that it was uh, uh, heavily hot beer, um, but it 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 the popularization of the term of India Pale Ale was a was a marketing a clever bit of marketing by um, British brewers in the 1820s. So much it turns out of uh, brewing history was about marketing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in the end, it's a product, and it only works if people buy it. So, yep. uh, all right. So we have in front of us a beer that uh, some people call the first IPA. Yes, and some people call the first uh, important uh, starting point for the American palate. Uh, mm-hmm. Anchor's Liberty Ale, mm-hmm. and I've always disputed this. And uh, it's not a beer I like. Um, it's not a beer that I think has anything to do with anything we drink now. And uh, <laughs> so we're drinking it. Did, uh, it's, um, did Liberty Ale, uh, was it concurrent, predate, or post-date Anchor Steam? Post-date. I okay. think it, it came in uh, in... I, I, actually, so I'm Anchor sure, started with Steam. I'm sure I actually know the answer to this. Okay. It, uh, it was born in 1976, and the Liberty Ale was kind oh, of a bicentennial okay. thing. I get it. And um, the, the its big claim to fame is it was 100% Cascade hopped beer. And that's why everybody says, oh, this must have been a super okay. important beer. But as we taste it, it's very uh, kind of... It's oh, I have a slight correction for you because I'm reading very difficultly, by the way, because my old eyes are having a hard time with this tiny text. But uh, you're right about the 76 part, but it actually was first brewed in April of 1975. Uh huh. So there you go. But it was brewed for the bicycle. On the 200th anniversary of Paul Revere's historic ride. Okay. Well, I knew it had something to do with America. So you're close. I mean, it does have a connection to the 76, the whole independence thing, but it was actually Paul Revere. Paul Revere. That it reveres. Go Sox. Um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so this beer, it's, uh, it's got a resinous bitterness. It's pretty heavy it is 5.9 percent which would have been strong in 1976 mm-hmm. it certainly would have been a powerful flavored beer uh to me i never really tasted the ballantine ipa but it it kind of reminds me of the descriptions i read it's a heavy beer 
um, it's yeah. kind of sweet. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, my first thought was if you gave me this beer and asked me what style it was, I would not have said IPA. Mm. I would have probably said a strong pale. So um, I don't find that the hop character is like super pronounced. Like the Cascades, it would be hard for me to tell you that these are Cascade hops. Yeah, there's this big debate about whether the modern uh, palate was uh, invented by this beer or started by this beer or Sierra Nevada Pale. Uh-huh. And most people, by, because of chronology, this one came first, give this beer credit. But it just... No, I don't think so. It just, the palate doesn't bear any resemblance to the modern palate. And uh, when you taste uh, Sierra Nevada Pale, it's like so contemporary because... Yeah. That, you know, it's in that lineage. So yeah. I think it's an interesting beer. Um, I have nothing but respect for Anchor, and they have a bunch of great beers. Their Porter is one of the favorite, my favorite beers in the world, but this beer I've never liked. So sorry, Anchor. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you made it. I'm glad you still make it. I'm glad a lot of people like it. I'm a big fan of Steam, um, largely just because it's such a unique beer. Uh, by the way, we, <laughs> we are in Oregon, and, and to, as if to prove the f- that we are in Oregon, there's just an ongoing chainsaw. Um, that is occurring in the background. So if, if our microphones are good enough to pick up that chainsaw, just just let that be evocative of us being in the dense fir forest of Oregon. Exactly. Even though we're in the inner southeast Portland, and it's just some dude doing tree trimming down the street. Hey, it could he could be he could be. But he's a lumberjack, no doubt. That's right, and yeah. that could be a big tree coming down, a big old fir tree, Douglas fir, two hundred feet tall. It could be. What do you got in New England? Those little. Scrawny pine trees, maples. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, all right. So that's so. Uh, so we're we were talking about the the history of IPAs way back, um, and now we're gonna skip forward. Yes. Yeah, we're gonna skip forward and just uh, while we try this uh, Dogfish Head sixty minute IPA, uh, which leaps us into the craft era into mm-hmm. the nineties. Uh, pause to note that um, before about 1995, IPAs were basically non-existent. There were a few examples that I would call uh, pretty pretty interesting things like Sierra Nevada Celebration, which looks a lot like a modern IPA. Uh-huh. But um, I have a couple of old books, and I've looked through them to see how, uh, and they, they were like, uh, they were books that cataloged uh, the, the beers that were being brewed in the United States. Mm-hmm. One was from 91 and one was from 96. And in the one from 91... Uh, Jack Erickson's Brewery Adventure, uh, Brewery, Brewery Adventures in the Wild West. I think that's just the West Coast. Uh, th- only three of 235 beers that he listed were IPA. By 1997, when Jessica Trainer Thompson released the Great American Microbrewery Beer Book, uh, <laughs> only eight of 187 were IPAs. So this okay. was not a thing until uh, the post like 1995. Commercially, I will say that. You and I were pioneers because we brewed an IPA when we first started homebrewing. So it was kind of known among homebrewers as a style. It was. And and people would care, you know, periodically brew them. And they would brew them in kind of throwback style. So they would they would look at this romance of this mostly mythical beer that was not actually brewed that much. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember examples where people would barrel age it or try to barrel age it. Or give it like like to, to make it seem as if it had sit in the in the warm hold of a ship for three months. Yeah, and I don't know if you remember this, but Charlie Papazian in 
Complete Joy of Homebrewing says, buy oak chips and toast them yes. in your oven. Yes, we tried uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> so that was That's again. right. I did not remember that till this moment. But yes, we did buy oak chips and we toasted them in the oven. Right. And that was, again, one of those things of like a throwback. And so the beers that people were making. This was, this was what, 1993 for us, I think. Right. Yeah. And I think that's kind of typical. Mm-hmm. Um, Harpoon IPA, 1992. I mean, there oh, were. Yeah. yeah. So there were some early examples. I mean, Harpoon IPA, you, you would say, is um, it's actually a, a, still a really tasty beer and I think fairly contemporary. It doesn't really look very much like IPAs now. But, right. Um, right. But boy, that was a really early example. Um, All right, so you just opened the Dogfish Head 60-minute IPA. And this, I think, is going to give us a taste of IPAs in that, like, there's three kind of eras of of, uh, American IPA. And this is, like, really the first one. These were the big, heavy, burly ones that were marked by bitterness. And I think that's what we're going to find here. Okay, It's perfectly clear, quite... Yeah, it's a really good-looking beer. It is. Deep, kind of copperish, maybe? And by the way, just to... Uh, though, though we've basically dismissed it as IPA um, to give the Liberty Ale its due in 1975, this was a pretty far out beer. So that's so kudos to them for that. Absolutely, that's a, that would have been a very flavorful beer if you were like had a Coors in one hand and you cracked one of those bad boys. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So I haven't had a Dogfish 60 Minute in a decade, maybe. So the. <laughs> Uh, sadly, sort of the thing I remember most about this beer was the big deal he made about uh, uh, adding hops throughout the boil, as yeah. if this was some new invention that he had single-handedly discovered. And yeah, Sam Collagione, uh describes watching a cooking show where somebody was adding like spice to a soup or a sauce or something over the course of a period of time, and that gave him the idea to uh, add. Uh, hops over the course of time uh and so he actually this is a i don't know this is apocryphal or not but it's it's too good to check so we'll uh, we'll, we'll say we don't want to know the truth that's right you know those old uh those old 70s uh magnetic football games where you yes he got one of those vibrating ones yeah and he put hops on it and then they would dribble into the beer that was the story so I let's not check it. It's I. It's awesome. I declare that to be the case. By the way, and since this is a beer podcast, I should talk about this, which is a few years ago because I'm a nostalgic father, and this is what you do. And you you see a lot of old toys being brought back, precisely because people like us have become parents. Um, uh, people of our age, I mean. Uh, I went looking for one of those old vibrating uh, football games, and and oddly enough. It was very hard to find. And you could find them, but they're very expensive. Yeah. It's like, it's that because, was a classic. Come on, man. It's because Gen Xers like us now have money and we're buying up the things for our youth and we're spending too much money. Well, and what happens is you buy these old things that you had so much fun prior to the advent of things like video games yeah. and smartphones. <laughs> and you stick them in front of your kid and they look at you with the most disdainful look ever. It's like, what are you talking about? This is the stupidest, most boring thing I've ever seen. It is, okay. too. I mean, those things were pretty boring. They, they, were, they were pretty, yeah. But anyway, so this beer, I think they've updated this beer. Uh, oh, that's funny. I was going to ask you what, what you thought because this is not the beer I remember. Yeah, it's not the beer I remember either. The beer I remember and the beer that was typical of the, uh, let's say, 1995 to 2000 range mm-hmm. were quite uh, uh, 
they were very stiffly bitter, and this was when the first of the super hopped beers came in. One of the most famous was Buffalo Bill's Alimony Ale, the bitterest beer in America. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, but it was supposedly more than 100 IBUs. And, and Speaking it, of marketing. Yeah. I don't remember that. That's pretty good, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, those kind of beers were starting to come in to Vogue, and they were extremely bitter. They had very little in the, in the, in the uh, uh, aroma or flavor category. Yeah. And to balance that incredible bitterness, they had pretty cakey, thick uh, uh, bodies, usually with a lot of caramel malt. Yeah. So they had their their balance point was like off the charts. They're almost like when you read descriptions of Burton ales uh, from England in the in the 1700s. These things that were super glutinous and adhesive right. uh, and very bitter. That's kind of what they were like. Yeah. Um, and they were a niche style. They were nobody was really that into these things, but there were a certain group. Uh, who this was like kind of before the the internet was getting going, but mm-hmm. um, there were there were groups of people who did like them, and so they they started to develop a little niche fan base, and you you saw breweries coming out like uh, Stone uh, yes. came out with their IPAs, and Arrogant Bastard was a really good example of this kind of beer, very intense, very heavy, very bitter, yeah, uh, and the marketing around it was all about intensity, 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 and and that yeah. was starting to attract people, yeah, and it was a real macho kind of like. Right. Yeah, can you handle it? Kind of, <laughs> this is so bitter, it'll melt your face. Um, yeah, I remember that era, and I, I was kind of into those beers a little bit. I mean, just sort of the really bracing bitterness it kind of had its own and it was, bit I think of interest. It, it was that moment when uh, craft beer, for a long time, from the, from the uh, early 80s through the mid-90s, craft beer was trying to contend with uh, the crossover drinker. They were trying to appeal to uh, people who were coming from mass market lagers right. and so a lot of the beers uh, uh boston lager uh, uh the, the various wheat beers and hefeweizens that were around mm-hmm. um even even beers like uh pete's wicked which was a brown ale was a yep. fairly low impact beer yep. all these beers were low impact so this was kind of the opposite it was like the inverse of that and right. i think that was that was a moment when craft beer was announcing its its arrival yeah yeah, that's a good way to put it. So I, yeah, I don't. This is this is different than I remember. They even mentioned like citrus citrus flavors on the label, which I imagine was not there originally. I remember it being sort of very, pretty dank and um, very bitter. Yeah, it's I much mean, more in balance now. And I remember it being incredibly vegetal. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that the, those those hops that had cooked throughout the boil um, were had created kind of a, a stewed quality, which mm-hmm. is absent now. It's actually. <laughs> uh, I've, I've long said it was not, I was not a fan of this beer. I actually kind of like this yeah, beer. Uh, it's just very, very flavorful. I know. I was going to say the same thing. It's quite a nice beer now, um, I think. Uh, yeah, there's a little... Uh, it's got a spicy mm-hmm. hop palette, which is different than most. Uh, yeah, I was going to say it's not like your classic modern American IPA, but it's got a very nice... It's actually quite nicely balanced. It's got a nice little spicy... And there is a tiny bit of citrus. Yeah. So mm. we tried we tried to get an old school IPA here and we, we kind of failed. Yeah, we, we didn't do it. <laughs> well, we can still talk about it. Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, go get go get a stone arrogant bastard is still I think it's still the same. Right. I haven't had one in a long time, but and here in Portland, uh, one beer I considered getting was a uh, Hair the Dog Fred, which mm-hmm. is sort of that era. It's uh, 10%, I think 10 kinds of hops, mm-hmm. very intense beer. Yeah. Um, so that stuff was coming along. Yeah. So the next beer uh, it's interesting because you suggested that we do a beer sherpa today about the sort of uh, significant IPAs in our personal 
beer drinking history and you happened to pick one up you went and shopping um without my consultation you happened to pick the one that i was going to mention and this is good segue because the reason i was going to pick this as my beer sherpa um is that i think it sort of represents a change away away from it's right at the point where ipas were becoming um, really hop infused but at that time it wasn't the super bright citrusy ipas we have now but sort of the really dank uh sticky sort of ganja-y kind of ipas and so this is uh, berry public's racer five which was my for a couple of years my go-to beer my favorite beer um and uh, for exactly that reason, it's like I realized that IPA could be a lot more. There could be a lot more flavor there, and a lot didn't have to rely on all that bitterness. So yeah. here we go. Yeah, I remember that too. This was the moment uh, where IPAs were beginning to mature. So we're entering the second phase, which uh, was the recognition that uh, late edition hops will provide flavor and aroma and give you a. Uh, a, a quality of intensity that doesn't rely entirely on bitterness. Yeah, and here's the, and just this reminds me because <laughs> I'm sticking it under my nose, the amazing aromas that they started to achieve. Yeah. I think this was the moment where you would just pick up an IPA and, and it would just be this amazing sensory experience before it even touched your lips. This beer, we, we've been trying to date these beers and we actually think that both uh, Dogfish Head and uh, Racer 5 date to about 99 uh, the interesting thing is, I would put I would put the kind of beers that Racer Five is characteristic of after 2000. So I think I think Racer Five was really ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a, an impressive early example of the kind of beers that would be popular over the coming decade. Yeah, yeah, that does. It's old school, but it's old school. Some, there's there's when we talk about old school, there's two kinds of old school. There's the bad old school, like the the 1995 old school, but uh-huh. then there's like this rockin' like. 19 or uh, yeah like circa 2002 ipa absolutely that aroma brings a smile to my face mm-hmm. it's mm. like that old band you forgot about from college yeah it's like acdc mm. it may not be the most sophisticated thing you've ever tasted but man mm. it's just that incredibly incredibly rich satur- hop saturated flavor yeah it's completely saturated and it's bitter for sure but that just saturated flavor really sort of almost overwhelms the bitterness. And so it sticks on your tongue a bit, not nearly as much as the, the face melters, but, but yeah, just all of a sudden um, uh, um, led to an awakening for me about what, what you could do with hops. Right. Yeah, this one does not have the aromatics. That's one thing you notice. It's, 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 it's got a nice scent, mm-hmm. but it does not have the kind of perfume that you find in modern ones. But right. the, but yes. the, the the hop flavor is really pronounced. It's led by this is a beer where hop flavor is actually uh, more 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 intense than hop bitterness. It's a bitter beer, but what yeah. you notice is that sticky. It's yes. very sticky and resinous. And yeah, back in these back in like oh, I still love that beer. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I haven't had one in a couple of years. In the, in the middle of the Bush administration, I remember that words like sticky and resinous and dank, these were these were big words that were becoming popular among uh, IPA fans. And I think mm-hmm. this is when IPA started to go from the fringes more to the center. Mm-hmm. Um, 2011 was when it became the best-selling craft style. But among people who were in the beer geek community, I think uh, it, it was arriving you know, it was at the center of the beer geek community, like maybe by 2000. Yeah. In the mid, you know, two, 2000, 
two to two thousand five, something somewhere in there, that became yeah. kind of the big the big star. And it was led by beers like this, which is a very nice beer. Still, yeah. it's still very. I'm still enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And it won the uh, JBF. The reason we know that it's at least as old as 1999 is because it won the gold medal in IPA and JBF in 1999. So All right. there you go. Yeah, it was my go-to, my go-to IPA. In fact, uh, it's also just sort of a talisman because sort of moving on, moving past Racer 5 was a big moment in my psychology, and that's because all of a sudden this new era came. But um, before we go all the way to the new era... Yeah, we have this, I think this beer that is, uh, uh, it, it's like a later, if Bear Republic was a transitional beer uh, into the second era, so this is the transitional beer in the second era that's that's pointing the way to the, the third era, the modern era. This is, uh, speaking of, speaking, speaking of beers in the news, uh, Lagunitas IPA. And now when you buy Lagunitas, uh, they have very much modern IPAs that they they're really they make a lot of very modern hop tinctures um this beer was so good and so popular that it's one of the very few beers uh that came from outside the state that you could regularly find on tap in portland oregon and Mm -hmm. you know in uh in in uh, beer coolers and stuff it was just i think in if i had to choose a beer that really brought uh IPAs into the mainstream that that got us to 2011 when it became the most popular beer style. I would choose this beer. I think it's like the perfect. Uh, it it goes from way extremes into sessionability and kind of approachability in a way that uh, people really like. So yeah. it's it's a uh, nicely nicely bright again. We're still in the bright IPA period, mm-hmm. uh, but again, still quite dark. Um, what do you call that? Gold, deep golden or well, copper? I was going to say, all of them have had... Um, none of them have been very dark. Uh, this one, along the darker side, I guess. I'm looking through the stuff we've poured. Yeah, this is sort of a, a deep golden. Yeah, that's about what I'd call it. Um, this is also what I presume sort of built Lagunitas Brewery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think you're exactly right. It was the, It was the one that sort of really became the mass market hop-saturated... beer that showed that you can have sort of amazing hop hop flavor and aroma in a in a beer that's not super heavy and super malty we have to recognize that all the beers uh when we're talking about craft beer in the united states it's actually a regional things happen at regional level so if we were in boston right now or in uh miami or in uh uh, madison wisconsin we would we would be talking about slightly different beers but in the case of ipa it must be recognized that the West Coast was leading the show. We were just miles ahead of everybody else. So the beers of the West Coast, um, there were uh, there were examples of IPAs like Dogfish Heads. Um, uh, Victory has an IPA, mm-hmm. an old IPA. There, there were IPAs, but by the time uh, Bear Republic and Lagunitas were, were being made, um, all up and down the West Coast, people were making IPAs, and they were not. They were still specialty beers in the other parts. Of the country, so yeah, we and were actually, really out in front. I have a personal anecdote with that because I was around and knew the guys who who started uh, Ithaca Brewing in Ithaca, New York, and right. And, and you were and you were in Ithaca, what years? So this is ninety five to two thousand, and this okay. is closer to the end there, especially right around the end of the time I spent in Ithaca. 
you know, they had started out with a bunch of sort of what I considered sort of mild. They had like a apricot wheat and a and a brown ale or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and a pale, uh, all sort of okay beers. I wasn't all that excited, but I had, you know, I would go home, <laughs> come back to Oregon, uh, and, uh, during the uh, the breaks from from graduate school and. Uh, uh, and taste all these amazing IPAs, and so I would come back and talk. I said, "Yeah, these are good," uh, but talk about the beers that I had. And, and I, think, I think finally they came out with the one. I think they're still selling. I don't know if they've changed how much they've changed the recipe, but they came up with this thing called Flower Power IPA, which was like a big hop, big a big hoppy IPA. But that was right about that must have been right about 2000 or even just after. So it took it took IPAs a while to sort of get, get traction in the East Coast. I think. Yeah. And we should mention here in Oregon, by far the most important IPA was uh, Bridgeports, which came out in 1996. Yeah, and we kind of a special mention for that one. Yeah, we we've we've tasted that beer on the pod before, and we've talked about that beer a lot. So I didn't get it, and it also didn't affect uh, any any place but Oregon very much. But I mean, <clears throat> in 1996, they had they they produced what was essentially uh, the third era. Uh, of IPAs in in the first era, still in the first era, it was deeply saturated. It used a ton of hops in the hop back mm-hmm. and a ton of hops in dry hopping. Um, it's only five and a half percent, but it was just right. this bouquet of aroma and flavor, and it really changed. In Oregon, after that beer came out, you know, within two or three years, it was one of the best sellers, and everybody was making it. So, yeah. well before the turn of the century, Oregon had become IPA. Uh, friendly and there were just examples all over the place yeah yeah and you saw that in california too but it was different beers that were leading the pack yeah well and it makes sense that oregon and washington would be the pioneers in ipas because we have all the hop fields around so it makes a lot of sense that local brewers would really want to start uh exploiting all of the wonderful local ingredients they they had um you're trying to match glasses to <laughs> speaking of we're gonna have trouble later if we yeah, don't start doing speaking, this stuff. speaking of <laughs> very similar colored colored beers um yeah so it, it 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 makes all kinds of sense that that you would use what's local and fresh um especially at the same time there was all this farm to table movement i imagine that brewers got really interested in what was growing locally yeah and pretty early on you and i tumbled to the fact with by dint of uh bridgeport's example that these beers didn't last very long. Old bottles of Bridgeport were kind of dead, and all that all that stuff that made them so good were, had kind of drifted away. Yeah, and this could be a reason why uh, East Coast brewers and, 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 uh, might have been a bit slow to, ad, uh, to adopt these kinds of beers because as a business decision, it can be a little fraught. Um, it's hard to control your product once it leads, leaves your brewery. And if it sits for too long and it's super hop infused, it can really degrade quickly. Yeah. <clears throat> and they may also have not even recognized what we were drinking if they were getting older bottles out there. I don't know. I don't know what kind of con- communication was happening between the East and West Coasts. But right. right now, all the, the hoppy the, the hoppy beers everybody loves are New England IPAs. And we can't get those and they can't be sent out here. And uh, we can we can make them ourselves, obviously. But. Yeah, in the mid to, in the, in the mid to late nineties, it was very hard to get um, the kinds of West Coast beers you could get. We usually Sierra Nevada Pale, which was great, so I bought a lot of that. <laughs> um, but there are very few uh, IPAs. In fact, I can't even remember um, any West Coast IPAs that I could get regularly in the East Coast. Yeah, unless you looked really hard. 
and yeah. then by the time they by the time they reached the east coast they weren't they weren't in great shape yeah uh, i just have to I, I have to say that it's been a few years since i've had a lagunitas ipa and that is a really excellent beer yeah, <laughs> it, it is a really excellent beer I, i've forgotten how good that is um, in fact i probably never really appreciated it mm. Uh, we used to go to a place called Chez Jose, a Tex-Mex place. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to Chez Jose East, which was over here on Broadway. And they had like three or four taps. They they didn't have a very good tap list. But they had Lagunitas IPA, and it was kind of a place that I went to a lot. And I right. drank a ton of Lagunitas IPA uh, there. Okay. And, and I began to become very familiar with it. And it's it's um, uh, it's a a gentle kind of IPA. It's yeah. Not, it's, not, it's not super... Uh, intense i don't know how strong it is it, it tastes a little bit lighter it's a little easier to drink exactly it's got a little bit of a moorish quality but it's still quite bitter and quite hop infused but it's got a really it's just it strikes that balance really well it does i mean racer five how much as much as i love it uh you know you have one or two glasses and you're done it pops you in the nose yeah <laughs> and that's why you have it it's, it is like acdc yeah. that way it's like exactly. oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> turn it up um Lagunitas IPA six point two percent, so yeah. it is a little bit more. It's still pretty strong. It doesn't. It just doesn't. It doesn't drink like that. To yeah, me, to me. So now we're going to start transitioning to the modern, modern, modern era. Right, and we've talked quite a bit on this program about what modern IPAs are like and how you make them. Um, and I don't think we need to go too deeply into late edition hopping and dry hopping, except to say that. Oh my gosh, we still have three more. We do. <laughs> the two are hiding behind my computer. <laughs> I thought we had one left. Oh no. No, we're professionals. Come on. Yeah, we're totally professionals. And this is a big boy, so, you know. All right, so what do you got there? So, what started happening was as these beers became popular uh, and people were discovering flavor and aroma, mm-hmm. they started figuring out how do these flavors and aromas interact with other flavors and aromas. Right. So, you started to see not just IPA, but you started to see. White IPAs, which were like white wit beers mixed with IPAs. Right. You saw black IPAs, yep. a style that's more or less dead. Uh, you uh, saw thankfully. R- red IPAs, <laughs> right? And then you saw things like, uh, like what I have here in my hand, a Belgian IPA. Uh, so we have uh, Green Flash's La Freak. Oh, La Freak. La Freak, which is a, an early example of one I'm of these. I'm excited because uh, I've never had La Freak before. I've, I've had a La Freak and I really, really loved it, but I haven't had it in a while. So I, I'm we'll always find out. yeah, it's always interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and how good is that bottle? <laughs> well, speaking of news. By the I got, way, I got these at Belmont Station, one of our faves, and they they usually pretty good about yeah, they move they move product fast. So yeah, right. But there were some. I think it must have been through you because I don't really pay any other attention to anyone else in the bureausphere out there. Uh, I always pour this for audio, and then I get this giant head because yeah, I'm gushing it in there. And I I'm do like, the same thing. I like to have the, <laughs> the beer pouring ear uh, uh, audio porn. Uh, but you must have tweeted something out or written something on your blog about how the um, the uh, uh, Brewers Association is promoting the industry-wide use of of, uh, um, of dates on the bottle. Is that right? Did I see that from you or somewhere else? No, and I didn't even know about it. So Okay, well, I probably shouldn't talk, though, because I'm probably mangling it. But there was some something I saw, and I thought it was from the Brewery Association or maybe some other trade group that was sort of trying to trying to create an industry-wide standard by which you would um, have information on the bottle about when it was brewed. At least that was what my takeaway was. And anyway, if that's true, even if that's not true, that should definitely happen. 
I think. Absolutely. I think that would be awesome. And that, that protects the brewers themselves because then the consumer is aware. And as an economist, I'm all about full information as much as possible. Uh, and it also puts pressure on retailers if they've got it on the shelf too long, not to try to sell old stuff. And so I think it's I think that would be fantastic. I, I totally agree. And the only reason you wouldn't do that is because your sales are not moving as fast, and you want old beer out there on the market so it'll still sell. And you shouldn't want old beer on the market <laughs> because because then the next beer you brew is not going to sell at all. That's right. Mm. So uh, the the um, the the. One thing I want to talk to you about, because it's been a, a subject that's that's come up and you're an economist, is mm. as all these different styles started to come out, white IPAs, red IPAs, rye IPAs, Belgian IPAs, session IPAs, triple IPAs, all these different IPAs, IPLs, we're about to drink an IPL, an Indian Pale Lager. Oh, right. Uh, you know, I mean, people were like, black India Pale Ale? It's, You'll just, it's self- just stick, stick a whole bunch of hops on it, stick India in the name. And- yeah, and, and some people feel that this is a really like a debasement of the style. And I've always sort of argued that uh, IPA, as we've entered into this modern era where you're getting incredibly vivid flavors and aroma, high levels of hoppiness, mm-hmm. to the consumer, that word India, basically it's word India because everything else is variable. But exactly. That, that communicates something incredibly salient to the, communi- to, to the customer. Yep. So uh, as an economist, what do you have to say about that? I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. Whatever, I mean, I don't, First off, I I think the style is a, a Frankenstein style anyway. I mean, it's it's been adopted and and morphed into lots of different things. But I think essentially that the word India now is is a cinnamon a cinnamon. <laughs> All right, <laughs> two more these, to go. These idea, these <laughs> well, I was going to say Lafrique is a boozy beer. It is. Um, it's a it's a Belgian imperial. Idea, yes, it's nine point two percent. And I just took a sip. Uh, so forgive me. It's it is a synonym uh, for hops, essentially. And so when you put India on it, you think, oh, that's got a lot of hops in it. Um, and I think that's fine. Um, yeah. I don't actually... It, if you want to call something an India pale lager, fine. I kind of get the point. Mm-hmm. And that's what matters, right? I kind of understand what you're trying to do here. You're going to throw a lot of hops in a lager, and we'll see how it goes. Um, yeah, so I don't actually have... You know, I'm not, I'm not a, a style Nazi anyway, so... Um, but I am big on being uh, uh, clear, communicating clearly with, and it's too much to just write on the on the bottle. Oh, we've taken a lager style and we've thrown a whole bunch of hops in it, and to it's evoke kind of, the qualities you appreciate in yeah, an IPA. Yeah, exactly. And so, <laughs> so I think India is great. It's a great shorthand. It, I think it does. It serves its purpose, which is it, it signals to the consumer, look, this is what we've done. Um, and as we have learned, uh, IPAs in their original form, in that pristine original form, was a marketing gimmick in the first place. So yeah. all you all you style Nazis have to realize that this this kind of appropriation goes all the way back to the original thing. There was nothing really too much to do with India in the first place. So everybody's been trading on that name for two hundred year over two hundred years. That's right. All right, so we got to go back to Lafrit because yeah, it yeah, is pretty freaky. It is. Whoa, <laughs> that's a beer. <laughs> Um, okay, I'm just going to admit, I think I've admitted before on this pod that um, I'm not a big imperial guy. I, I, I'm i pretty sensitive to alcohol content, and once you get above 6.5%, you're starting to get into territory that I often don't like. This one is not bad. It's boozy. It is boozy. Um, but it's got a lot going on in one sip. So analyze, beer guy. Well, for one thing, um, the thing I didn't remember about this beer is that it's got a ton of malt, and I'm surprised about that. 
Yeah. I would. I think that's the one the one element of this beer that I'm not super in love with. Yeah, it's the darkest of all the beers we've had, by the way. It's more of a amber, yeah. well, straw to amber kind of color. Yeah, it looks like a, mm, a yeah, darker beer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Technical term. Oh yes. boy, the beers are catching up to me. <laughs> there goes the. This was always a dangerous project. (laughs) Seven IPAs live. Okay. Yeah, and you can even smell that barley in there. So I I think it is very malty. Had I been in the brewery, I would have said, uh, do what the Belgians do and cut it with sugar. Sugar, yes, exactly. But the yeast character is really coming through, and I'm liking that. It's very Belgian y. Yeah, and they say something on the the bottle here. Where did I see it? Oh, dual yeast fermentation. Mm. So you got two yeasts going on in there. I don't even know. I assume that later in the in the fermentation process that they throw in a second. To my palate, it it really reminds me of a triple. Um, the, mm-hmm. So there 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 are the the esters, the the fruitier esters, and uh, kind of there's almost a bubblegum thing going on there, and uh, that's really nice. And they use they say they use amarillo, which I think is a good choice. It's a very it's a pretty uh, straightforward citrusy thing, which which will go nicely with uh, fruity esters. So I think all that's working really well together, and it's it's pretty harmonious. And for a beer this size, it's it's um, uh, you know all the intensity is kept relatively in check. It's it's a it's a big intense beer, but I'd I'd say I credit it for restraint. Yeah, I mean it's super interesting. There's a lot going on. Um, I'll admit it's probably not one I'd look for just because I, you know, it's. What did we call it? Nine. It's nine point two percent. So yeah. it's just bigger than usually what I want. Um, uh, but yeah, it's just a super interesting beer and and not not wild in any way in in the sense that there's like too much of any one thing. It's all in in sort of a strange and freaky balance. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's I think it's well it's well uh, uh, named. Do you know when it came out roughly? Uh, I think it came out kind of in this period of time when we had the proliferation of different different styles. So maybe in that mid to mid aughts, somewhere in there. Yeah, because I was gonna say it, it. It strikes me as a product that's sort of in the in the time of all of like the big barrel aged beers and um, and where big was sort of a big thing and people were looking for all kinds of like really really big beers and big strong flavors and stuff. Yeah. So. Well, we've got the next one. We've got is uh, Saint Archer Nelson IPL. Uh, I opened the last one. You can... Oh yeah, this one's gonna sound good because this one is in a can. And IPLs are again another one of these. I'm guessing the Nelson is because Nelson Salvin. That's what I'm guessing too. I didn't. Really... <laughs> could have could have read the can before. I could have read the cast, but well, I. The only other IPL in in the shop was Widmer's, and we drink a lot of Widmer on the on the podcast. And as we know, I'm compromised because I'm running a Widmer. Yeah, doing. you're so in the pocket. So I I left that one aside. Trust anything he says <laughs> about Widmer. About Widmer. <laughs> other things, please trust me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Saint Archer is one of these breweries that got sold to somebody, and it was not ABI, I don't think, um, but I can't remember who. They did. I. Uh yes, yep. indeed. Yeah, yeah. No, and I then, do remember. And then there's that other, there's that other brewery we haven't come up with the name of. Maybe yes. in Virginia somewhere. That's, yeah, that's there. That's there. It's definitely true too. Um, yes, they got. I don't remember which one. Maybe it was the Miller Coors, one of the Miller Coors, because they have an 
acquired too much, but I do remember reading about them getting acquired. And what's interesting is they called this the Nelson IPL, and as far as I can tell, they don't tell you why it's called Nelson. It's got to be for Nelson Sullivan. It's well, I'll be, able to, I'll be able to tell you in about three seconds. That's right. We know Nelson Sullivan, which is especially <laughs> Patrick's nodding. <laughs> I, took, I took the, one. I took one with. He smells the Nelson. Do you get the 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 Sauvignon Blanc or do you get the sweat? I get the Sauvignon Blanc, baby. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. I don't get the sweat at all. We've oh. had this discussion before. Yeah. I'm not. I don't get the sweat. I love Nelson Sauvin. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> there it the is. Sweat. Oh. <laughs> smells like a linebacker. We talked about that. I think we might have talked about this when we were talking to Tom Shellhammer about how differently we react to some of the same hops. Thiols. Mm. I think this is all about the thiols. Thiols, yes. Sulfur compounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cat pee. Ah. You get cat pee? Ah. Ah. <laughs> cat pee and sweat. <laughs> Yeah, it's more sweaty, Ugh. Ugh. and it really sticks to the old tongue. This is interesting because um, on my life, I couldn't tell you that was a lager. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was about to say the same thing. If you put this in a lineup of IPAs, well, okay, IPA. So the fact that it's using a lager yeast or even a lager uh, recipe is not almost kind of neither here nor there. No, it isn't. This is. Um, it's also San Diego-ish in that it's really bitter. It is really bitter, Whoa. and it's it's San Diego-ish, and, and this is, I'm glad we finally got one, is very pale. So this is another thing that in the modern yeah. era, you're starting to see the scaling back the heavier malts, because in the modern era, it's all about uh, everything to do with the flavors and aromas that you can get from hops. Yeah. They don't have to all be from hops, and that's why we see this proliferation of other things, because these other things accentuate hops. So if you're using a Belgian yeast strain or an English yeast strain, if you're mm-hmm. using fruit, uh, if you're using um, uh, what else to be spices like the in the that you have in the uh, white IPA, mm-hmm. all these things harmonize with the hops and and accentuate that hoppy quality. But other things that are not related to hops, like like caramel malt and body, people are starting to strip out. And it's actually very common in the modern era for people to use uh, dextrose or, or 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 sugar to uh, thin the body and kind of get it out of the way because you you want the alcohol you don't want the you don't want anything conflicting that yep. would interfere with that yep. those flavors and aromas and suddenly adding that stuff is no longer considered uh, anathema to being a craft brewer and while I I find this beer objectionable because of the hop variety used <laughs> it is one hundred percent modern IPA it is just one of these beers that's just in intensely aromatic and intensely flavorful yeah i'm actually gonna i'm actually gonna sound a slightly sour note i find it slightly unrestrained i think it's a little out of balance that could be that san diego thing yeah it's exactly that san diego thing that's what you want down there that's fine i'm i'm more power to you but for me it's just a little little too much it is a product of uh innovations or uh, incremental uh uh, move toward late edition and, and dry hopping mm-hmm. that, that characterize the modern era that you wouldn't you would never have seen even in a, in a beer like a, a, a Bridgeport in in one of those two earlier eras. It's really really modern in that way. Yep, absolutely. Um, I think Patrick, it's it's you are you you've come down. You used to be a, a screaming IPA hophead fan, and there was a there was a time when there was never. There was never a further edge that you would not go to. That's probably true. And in fact, if you serve this to me just, you know, in in isolation, I would be quite happy to drink it. If this weren't Nelson, I'd be enjoying the hell out of it. I got to tell you. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't mind. That I have time. to say that my experience with IPLs <laughs> is maybe it's partly my own conception, but I don't think that the lager base quite supports the, the, the super infused hops. I'll tell you, it's a harder beer to do, but when it's done right, um, it, it can be spectacular. One of the best IPLs I ever had, one of the best beers I ever had, was a gigantic IPL, and it was uh, 5%. So it was a really mm. modest little beer, and it had uh, it had this just intense. I mean, it had all these qualities, but it was in a perfect harmony. I drank it. It was a. It was. In, they released it in the summer, and I was over at the Green Dragon, sitting outside, and it was sunny day, and that beer was like. Mana. See, I bet I love that. So this year, I think I've discovered maybe what I'm talking about is it's this is a six point eight percent beer, uh-huh. so I I find it kind of boozy and bitter. Um, and I'm I'm very sensitive to alcohol, so I would hey, think Patrick, that, you know, we're drinking IPAs here. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're going to do an IPL, then that's exactly I think the gigantic example is perfect. Like like tone it tone down the the base and the bitter and go for full aromatics, but on this base that's that's right, which is like a low five percent, maybe even high four percent. I think one of the cool things that that we're finding now in this this third era of of uh, IPAs is that they're they're the, they're really dividing. You're you're finding radically different expressions, mm-hmm. and it creates and they're all within a same valence. The quality of these beers all is the same. So when you say when you put that India word on there, we all recognize them. Yep, that's all <laughs> India, and yet they're so individual and so different that people have very uh, you know the, quite different reactions depending on on what their own profile what they like you know you i have a couple of friends who there's the dan standard i have my friend dan i'll give him a call call out here he's a vice president at wells fargo and uh he loves uh he's gonna love you for saying that. i know hey dan (laughs) uh he loves 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 alcohol just like you dislike it, and yeah. If it doesn't, if it's not, if a beer isn't six percent, he feels like it just doesn't have enough flavor, right? And when, yep. you know, you and I often brew beers that are below six percent. Generally, we brew, brew beers that are that. Yeah. And he always, when, even when we intend intend to brew beers, that's, well, <laughs> let's not mention that. He often <laughs> gives true. me this yeah. like um, uh, disappointed look. Like I like your beer, but why do you always make it so weak? So yeah. some people. For, for oh absolutely I, I get it you know, this, by the way, I would say I would say if 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 Dan if I had this and Dan came over I'd say oh yeah it's a Dan beer and he'd be yeah. like oh good good yeah. I and I will that. say by the way that um, though I find it a little too alcoholy and, and a little too bitter um, I love Nelson Salvin hops and the flavor of this is fantastic the flavor and aroma is outstanding this is this is really good in that sense I just you know if it were a five point eight percent beer I'd probably be totally into it completely. Well, you're going to love our last beer because it's 8%. Yeah, it is 8%, which is slightly, I'm making me slightly weird because I'm so excited to try this. It is. So the last beer, uh, I'm in the, I'm in Belmont station, which they have a million beers and, you know, a good half of them are IPAs and, um, I got to come up with, so we, we did Lafrique, we did IPL, but then I got to come up with like a perfect example of a straight ahead modern IPA. Super modern. Yeah. The absolutely newest latest type style and i got it i got one one hand tied behind my back because i can't we can't do breakside because we talk about breakside all the time they're obviously like when people come to oregon i'm like oh you want an oregon ipa breakside and then i saw it a four pack which <laughs> I, I had to buy four so there's, there's, ooh, ooh, do i get to take one home you get to take one home if you'd like yes. well you can yes. you can uh 
Ooh, you can yeah. judge whether you want to take one home after we try this. It's true, it is 8%. I didn't realize that until just a few minutes ago when I looked at the can. This in Oregon is... Uh, can't it's, talk and pour at the same slightly, time. The beer's, it, in, the beer's in the way. It kind of has the mythic proportions that the that the like the heady topper sort of does. and I mean, it's nothing quite, n- nothing nearly that... Yeah, we don't that have pervades, that stuff because we have so, so many, many IPAs. Yeah, so. They, they, there's the people have different preferences, so there's nothing like the the heady here. But this is one of those beers that comes close to heady in, yeah. in its popularity, and I, I can tell already from or the aroma. Or it's mythology. Let's, yeah, yeah. I can tell already in the aroma that the, uh, um, I think it's quite fresh, but still on ta- on tap, this thing is even fresher. Mm-hmm. So this is we're coming to that that thing, although. It is very clearly a modern IPA. By the way, I am just such a total, complete convert to cans. I, I know. I'm a bottle. I was sort of a bottle snob, like, but, but, and especially these beers, like, good, good God, they have so many uh, hops in there. The last thing you want to do is expose any of them to light. Yeah. So if you're looking for a for a, a, a nice IPA and you have a choice, go for the can always, always. <laughs> oh, I just see on the label here. It says on sticky hands. It says uh, canned fresh. Best before yesterday. <laughs> Good. Yes. yes. So Block 15 is one of the best breweries in the world. I'm going to go on record as saying that. I love this brewery. This is oh, the beer so that <laughs> this is the beer that they're most famous for. Uh, and uh, interestingly, because this was a late. I mean, they were around for quite a while before they came out with this one. They were. And Nick Arzner, uh, it was kind of known when he came out for his his um, his more wild stuff. He was yep. he was doing barrel aged stuff. He's a real savant with uh, uh, wild yeast. He mm-hmm. cre- creates wonderful flavors out of wild yeast that were harmonious and restrained acidity, all that great stuff. But but, you're, talk- in, but you're in Oregon. But you're in Oregon. And when I was talking to him, he admitted. He's a hop guy. Like at the end of the day, he loves his IPAs, yeah. and so this is um, the culmination of uh, nearly a decade of refining uh, his process to come to IPA Nirvana. And here's an interesting thing: Sticky Hands doesn't have a fixed re- recipe. He continues to change this. He continues to refine it. Continues to refine it. So every time you buy IPA or buy a Sticky Hand, it may have gone through an iteration. It's and- the latest, newest, latest expression of the art of super hop infused. So. It's 8.1%, which mm-hmm. is usually above my wheelhouse. Um, it is very much more of an Oregon uh, example, isn't it? That the intensity is... Um, we, ju- we just like balance in Oregon. Yeah. I think Jamie Floyd at Ninkasi told me that he thinks of um, Oregon... He's always thought of Oregon as uh, being more like a German following more to the queuing more to the german tradition and mm-hmm. I, I was really surprised because we're famous for our hops and all these other things like yeah but but we, we really like balance we're more into balance um california is much more into intensities and they've always led with these very bright very sharp very mm-hmm. aggressive flavors and oregon uh has always been more in balance and this really strikes me that way it's uh it's uh compare it perfect that we compared it right after the saint archer which is like very 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 intense and yeah so actually i was going to say exactly that which is among the other things that you can get in balance i would have never told you that this was 8.1 percent alcohol that saint archer sort of hits you over the head with the alcohol in my i'm very mm-hmm. sensitive again mm-hmm. i've said this again but the sticky hands i would not have have known but it's a very rich intense extremely well balanced beer that's got just an amazing uh aroma and flavor hot profile that's just 
out of this world. It's not quite as um, super bright on the citrus notes that that a lot of the modern IPAs are, but otherwise it's completely modern in the sense that it's just hop infused and very balanced. And yeah, it's got more stone fruit to me, mm-hmm. more fruity. It's uh, and yeah, yeah. Have another fork of that and see what I think. <laughs> Hmm. This is the seventh one in the series of so <laughs> analysis. I know, and they kept getting stronger. We, we, well, I guess I didn't keep the Racer Five was pretty strong, but yep. we finished strong. We sure did. Mm. I got distracted, and now I have to go back in for another. Okay, so you were another. talking about. I was saying that citrus. Mm. It's not quite as sort of bright citrusy as some of the modern ones are, but it's thoroughly modern in that it's hop saturated without being bracingly bitter. That's right. It's not very bitter. Mm-mm. It's also a fascinating thing about um, hops is because of their fruitiness, they can communicate sweetness because we associate fruit and sweet. And this this beer has that kind of um, uh, it doesn't have the the very sharp bitterness. Um, it has a bitter spine, and I think this is another thing in in Oregon, and it it really differs from uh, New England IPAs, which try to drain the bitterness out as much as possible and get mm-hmm. a really more pure fruit juice quality. In the, in Oregon, we like a spine of bitterness. And yeah. I've talked about brewers here, and they feel like it's an important point of, of uh, balance. But to the extent that that bitterness is absent, they do, they do, they can taste very sweet. And this has um, that fruitier uh, quality uh, that, that the modern palate is headed toward. So mm-hmm. it's, I think it's mo- very modern that way. Yeah. Yeah, I would... I guess the way that I would um, describe the the well, actually, let me <laughs> too many beers. When uh, <laughs> the last pod we talked about, we had these fruit juice uh, uh, fruit added fruit added beers. So we had these grapefruit IPAs. Um, I think we had the Sam Adams Rebel IPA with grapefruit and a couple others. Anyway. Uh, and you and we had this discussion about the sort of the snap of the grapefruit juice itself, and so a really true modern IPA um, can bring out all of the citrus qualities you want just from the hops themselves. That's right. And what's brilliant about that, relative to the ones that actually put juice in, is that you get all the flavor you want out of those hops, but you don't have to deal with all that sort of weird bittering sour characteristics that the juice is bringing itself. Right. And so I find a lot of those grapefruit juice. Um, added beers slightly unpleasant because of that sort of I think you called it rindy sort of bitter that doesn't just there's nothing to sort of disguise it with or blend it with Um, but you get a great modern IPA that uses some of the newer hops that can really express grapefruit and it's just fantastic so yeah the when you only use hops, you can rely on the sweetness from the malt and the com, and the communication of sweetness from the, the the esters and the fruit flavors that you get from the the, the hops. So you, precisely, it's like yeah. a it's almost like a a sleight of hand. Yeah, you create this flavor that isn't actually identical to fruit, but it tastes more like fruit than if you add fruit. So I guess I guess my my takeaway from that is I kind of now look at the beer shelf and look at the look at the beers where they have actually added the juice, and I kind of sigh and think oh you know that's just like that's cheap and lazy and it doesn't and it's not nearly as good so i think that there's ways that you can get exactly those flavors um if you're a little bit more clever uh i imagine though as a marketing tool there's still a a segment of the market out there that kind of likes the idea of having juice added to their beer 
I'm getting uh, it's a, it's like a peach apricot thing, mm-hmm. and then I'm also there's also a white wine, uh, which I get from this, which you're supposed to get from Nelson, which I but I don't get. So hmm. yeah, it could be Nelson there. There's also a little bit of stankiness too, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little Columbus or something in there that um, that expresses that. So it's uh, you got to have a little stanky. Yeah, it's a uh, it's uh, that's a. That's a full throttle IPA there <laughs> in all ways. I think we're probably there. I don't think there's, if I had to guess, I don't think there's a fourth generation of IPAs. I think we've, we've kind of come to a terminal point and we will mm-hmm. now, it'll be variations on a theme. By the way, I just want to mention that on the can it says this is unfiltered, but it's still quite a bright beer. So it's clearly conditioned quite well. And yeah. there's not just a lot of like hop, hopper yeast or or uh, flour residue that's that's in there relative to sort of New England styles. Yeah, and th- I mean there there are things like New England styles, and there's a big debate about uh, the extent to which New England style represents its own category or not. Mm-hmm. Um, my 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 sense is from a sensory perspective, you close your eyes and taste the New England IPAs. Uh, the thing that you would notice is their low bitterness, yeah. um, high intensity, low bitterness. Uh, you know, high uh, flavor and aroma intensity and low bitterness. Mm-hmm. Um, the cloudiness is sort of beside the point. Yeah, and I, I agree. So I think you see variations on that uh, with different levels of bitterness in all IPAs made all over the, the country. Um, and I, I don't know that there's... I, I think that it's possible to tweak a few more percentage points of flavor and aroma out of these, but probably we're not going to go much further than we are right now. And, yeah. And um, I think that... All the well, I think the progress is probably. Oh, sorry, I stepped on you, but I think the progress is probably going to just be in the new hop, the right. hop varieties that come in new different flavor. flavors, different yeah. aromas. Yeah, and I think we went through that period where people were trying all these other experiments with other ingredients and other kind of techniques and 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 stuff to to goose the the flavors. And my guess is things you know things like black IPAs are really falling out of favor. Uh, Belgian IPAs are less popular. Um, some of these white IPAs are less popular. I, I think uh, as we become more familiar with the way that hops themselves express themselves, mm-hmm. people are coming to back to the, the place that you were describing earlier of that pure kind of like, actually, I just like hops. It's cool. The idea of throwing citrus in there, I, I get it, but mm-hmm. come back, come back, come back. And I think my guess is we're going to find in the future, if I were to look ahead five years, I'm guessing there'll probably still be fads with random stuff being thrown in, but um, more and more the go-tos will be pure IPAs that, that um, you know have different qualities. Some are more citrusy. Some are more dank. Some are more bitter. Some are less bitter. You know, yeah. all these different things. But and just to put sort of the period on the sentence, which is that there's so many varieties now of hops that there's such a broad palette that's available to brewers, and we're we've learned so much and are so good about accessing those characteristics from the hops themselves that there's much less of a need to go to other additives, spices. Um, juices and things like that to get those flavor characteristics out of out of the beers, um, and then at, from a from a economist standpoint, there's such a demand for new hops that express different things that there's you know there's such an active uh, um, uh, breeding program that's going on uh, to try to develop the newest latest hop that has different flavors. So I imagine that that's the future is just coming, just getting all that stuff straight from the hops and getting and new hops coming on online that that express new types of flavors. Yeah, I think you're right, and we're we're seeing uh, every year. I keep like 
basically it feels like every time I walk into a pub, I see a, a you know an IPA and it'll have the name of a hop I've never heard of that right. it's used. To <laughs> I know. So <laughs> there's just uh, and now we're seeing um, uh, this lupulin powder that we talked about a, a few pods ago, right? Which is again just a hop product designed to you know goose the, that flavor. So maybe they're going to find out that uh, different hop varieties work better as a lupulin powder than others and so you'll see that but again these are these are small changes it's um it's you know it's not it's not a radical shift like the sort of three eras that we saw i don't i don't think we're going to go into that a new era we're just going to have refinements and changes and going to maybe like it's maybe more like vine like uh with wines you have varietals yeah i think the third era really represents the 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 moment at which brewers really mastered the art of of right. extracting the flavor, char- flavor and aroma characteristics from the from the hops, and it's largely about really uh, utilizing utilization on the cold side. You uh, often talk about the with the wisdom of markets and um, <laughs> uh, the process that we saw about um, when we started out in 1995 with these alimony ale, terrible bitter things, mm-hmm. to today was a development. It's a really fascinating. Uh, intersection between culture and commerce where there was this communication and I talk about this on the pod from, or on the blog from time to time uh, communication between the the the, con- the uh, brewer and the consumer you know they'll make they'll try something and then the consumer will will drink it and you know they'll re- the consumer will respond positively to something and things will change and so this this um, this evolution that we saw is one of those I was reminded as I was thinking about this this podcast. It's one of those wisdom of the markets things. It seems like it's a, it shows a cultural evolution, but also a commercial evolution. Yeah, I mean, I would I would describe it as an evolution. I mean, I think I think a lot of what we've seen in craft beer over the last few decades has been um, a, a maturation process, a learning process, where you know, first at the very beginning, like we were talking about this with Liberty Ale, you sort of start tell people look there are other flavors out there there's you know beer can taste differently and so you start bringing people along that way and then you start telling people not to be afraid of bitterness and so they get these big bitter things and not only they're not afraid but it becomes kind of a thing right like let's ooh bitter you know let's get let's get a bitter smack in our beer um and uh and now what consumers have realized is that beer can be this wonderful flavorful thing that's not um, not just on the tongue, but also the aroma can be amazing. And I think people now have all of a sudden realized, and the brewers themselves even have realized the kind of amazing flavors and aromas you can get. And now it's become this intense. Um, there's you know a very strong demand for this. So I I do think that the market talks back to the brewers, and the brewers the brewers educate the market at the same time. And I think it's a process. And I think where we've reached. The point at which we reach now, which really supports the modern IPA, is that people have, people have one discovered that beer can be just so much more <laughs> than um, it used to be, uh, and it doesn't have to be um, bracingly bitter or offensive or hard to approach. It can be very approachable, very flavorful, and at the same time, brewers have learned how to make a beer that's very approachable and very flavorful and i think we've just reached that sort of that that uh well that equilibrium <laughs> that equilibrium in the market where see there you go the market yeah, they yeah the market. exactly so the i think of the market uh so i do i think it's a process of evolution both both from the brewer side and from the market side yeah 
Yeah, and, 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 and as a technical matter, it, it's difficult to imagine where, the, where you could go. There was a period of time when you realized that you could shift to uh, a late hopping and cold side hopping mm-hmm. to a certain point. And now, I mean, people are, people are putting in, you know, five pounds per barrel in the dry hopping. And, like, you, you could double that, but there's a certain point at which you're not going to get any more utility. Yeah, you do have the sense that we've kind of, we've now sort of mastered the process and there's not a whole lot more to learn but who knows but uh but i'm glad we did because now i think that i mean i just love i love all the flavor and aroma you can get out of a beer and still make it very approachable and drinkable i have one anecdote to tell we're probably running long we're always running long but That's okay. uh, i have one anecdote to tell that get that, the money's worth yeah <laughs> the, there were in the 1990s right after i started writing about beer for willamette week and i think i started in 97 so mm-hmm. this uh will date this uh I was, um working as a researcher at portland state university and periodically my coworkers and i would go out for a beer mm-hmm. and my boss uh at one of the on one of these occasions we sat down and she said uh and i'd start writing about beer so i was regarded as the local expert about beer and she we sat down and the waiter came and she said kind of to him and kind of to me uh he said what kind of beer do you like and she said i don't know what kind of beer i like i don't I don't really like bitterness. I like IPA. <laughs> and it was the moment, and I think this this was definitely post-Bridgeport uh, IPA. Mm-hmm. I, it was that moment when um, the separation was beginning to happen between the flavor of bitterness that we associate as humans with bitterness mm-hmm. and um, these flavors and aromas that were available in the market. Right. And at, I used to tell that story to people and they would get irritated or it would blow their mind. And they were like, that's just stupid. She was uneducated. And now I think... If I told that story, or if somebody sat down and told the waiter that, nobody would bat an eye. Right. They would they would be like, nope. That, okay, that, that. I got stuff for you. I got a lot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'll give you, I mean, this the sticky hands, you could give her this beer, and she would be like, yeah, that's not bitter. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So right. anyway, there you go. That's All the right. story of, uh, that's my anecdote that captures the story of uh, American IPA. There you go. So there is the, there in a brief hour and a half is the, the story of IPA. Uh, uh, so... Uh, we, we did I uh, my beer sherpa. Oh, you didn't do your beer sherpa. I did mine, which was Razor Five for those Pliny the Elder. No, uh, I don't think I need to say anything more. That was the one that turned me around. That beer, and it was it was um, turned you around. Okay, so hold on, you need to just say more. So you were not into IPAs until that point. Oh no, I was into IPAs. I loved IPAs, but I didn't understand the. I didn't. I didn't um, appreciate the potential of IPAs until I uh, tasted that beer. Right, and the level of saturated flavor and aroma um yes. that Pliny the elder delivered was like i was a revelation to me yeah yeah and i i still when i i taste that beer and you know people have their different relationships to these older beers and and when people come who are younger or haven't had them in a while sometimes they they sniff and say ah, i don't i don't really get it and and I, I appreciate that but when i taste Pliny the elder to this day i think oh my god that is a titan of a beer that's to me, you know, everybody will talk about Hetty Topper as being the most important American IPA in, in, in changing the American conversation. But, but for me, it, it was by far Pliny, and, and Pliny was so important on the West Coast, and the West Coast drove everything. So, I was going to say, well, they could both be right, right? I mean, they, the conversation needed to be changed on both coasts. And, and, I, and I, think, I think that's more accurate, and it's m- way more than two beers. So yeah. everybody who has sure. their beer, uh, there, were, there were a lot of beers yeah. that... that change the strategy. All right, we didn't so. talk about this. I'm going to put you on the spot, though. What's your favorite modern, modern IPA? I've been drinking a lot of Wanderlust, uh, although 
I had like five ounces of, so Wanderlust is a beer that's made by Breakside. Breakside. Uh, and I, they, they recently opened their new place over in the Northwest and they had Tall Guy IPA, which was uh, by one of their really tall brewers and they call it Tall Guy. Oh, okay. It won the Oregon Beer Awards for Best IPA mm-hmm. in a straight off judging and i tasted that thing and it, it probably beat out bridgeport i mean uh breakside ipa <laughs> that's right and breakside wanderlust right. <laughs> <laughs> beat, out, beat out all the breaksides that thing blew me away but i had like five ounces and i went back to get it and it was out and i haven't been able to track it down so i think tall guy might be might be coming on right. um well i'm gonna be uninteresting then because my my current favorite my go-to ipa is just the breakside straight ipa yeah and this is i think a funny thing because even even people who like breakside tend mm-hmm. to break either towards ipa or wanderlust mm-hmm. and i've seen how i've seen reactions from partisans of both sides look at the other person like oh you have a terrible palate you like that other beer it's <laughs> <laughs> from the same brewery uh, can you describe the difference uh i think the, i haven't had enough wanderlust to do so i think the wanderlust is um they have different IP, uh, different hop profiles and that's Definitely, really yes. that's really the big thing and the, for me the wanderlust is um it's a little bit yeah, stickier and uh pinier pinier resinous yep. Yep. kind of yep exactly and, and um, the regular IPA, IPA is, is more citrus citrusy little. like bell like you yep. know it's yep. got just a kind of a pure when you taste it it's like ding yeah it really strikes you um yeah and i think kudos to make two different ipas that really you know go in different totally different directions and clearly satisfy different people yeah we've said way too much about breakside in this this pod but there's a reason (laughs) okay they Uh, should be they should be since we're going to talk about them anyway they should be giving us money now that's true yeah we're going to stop i think we should i think we should now stop talking about them until they start running Give Scott a call. Hey, man. Uh, okay. All right. Well, we should probably end this thing since it's already an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the longest ever, but hey. Maybe, but uh, it's IPA. It's IPA. I mean, what are you going to do? Come on. Uh, okay. So uh, a few words uh, on, on going out here. Uh, thanks very much for listening to the podcast, of course. Thanks very much for All About Beer for hosting our podcast. Thanks very much to Guinness for sponsoring our podcast. Uh, how to get in touch. Uh, Jeff, of course, blogs at the Beervana blog. Uh, which is beervanablog.com. He tweets at at beervana. Uh, and is there still the Beervana blog Facebook page? There is, yeah. Okay, so the Beervana blog Facebook page is probably the very best way to get in touch. Yeah, and that's becoming a nice little uh, place for people to chat about stuff. I still post links to my blog, but um, we talk about all things beer there. So give it yeah, a look. Yeah, Beervana blog Facebook page actually is pretty cool. Uh, I blog at Beernomics sometimes, most uh, often, more often, I, <laughs> I tweet at, at Beernomics. Uh, and you can email Jeff at jeff at uh, which is a good way to be in touch as well. Don't email me, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but of course, we'd love to hear from you. Um, please give us your feedback, your comments. Um, you can do it any way you want. You can uh, tweet about it. You can write about it. You can Facebook about it. You can email about it. That's right. You, uh, you send up a semaphore and we will let people know about it. Yeah, in fact, this podcast itself was... Uh, uh, the genesis was a comment yep so please give us your ideas about future pods what you'd like to hear about what, you, what you'd like us to talk about um and yeah thanks for thanks for listening okay oh seven beers to choose from i think i'm actually gonna go to lagunitas ipa wow no, no 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 well okay i'll do it i'll do it yeah i was, I was, I was 
vacillating old, between the Racer 5 and that. For old time's sake. Okay. Racer All 5. Right. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>